Ephesians 4, 25 to 27, we're going to be reading a portion of um, an, an extended passage. It really goes to the end of verses 32. And, and there are a series of commands that Paul is giving in light of who we are. Let's read Ephesians 4, 25 to 27 together. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, on your anger, and give no opportunity for the devil. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your inspired words. Thank you for your words. Even in your commands, Lord, we delight because they are for our good. God, you give us your words so that we might experience more of you, so we might know you closer, so that we might live out the life you've called us to. God, I pray that you would help me this morning as I preach, that you would help everyone here as they hear, that you would open up our eyes to see you, that we might experience you, Lord. We pray for the gift of conviction, but Lord, we pray as well for an understanding of your grace. And I pray that the motive for obedience this morning would not be sheer duty, but it would be delighting in you, delighting in the new life that we have in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, words taken out of context can have very different meaning, can't they? Words in context are extremely important. One writer trying to make a point that the resurrection of Jesus didn't really occur, he, he took his readers to the book of Matthew and he said, well, you know, the thing is, is when, when Jesus' disciples came to visit him at the grave, the problem is when Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Jesus, when they, when they came to visit Jesus at the grave, they just went to the wrong grave. That's what this one writer said. They went to the wrong grave. And see, you can tell that, but he, he took them to the book of Matthew and he said, you see, when they went to the tomb, they met this mysterious man. And he quoted from Matthew 28, 6. And he said, this man said, see, he's not here. Come see the place where he lay. And so the writer said, see, they'd just gone to the wrong grave. And the man was just trying to show them a place where he really lay. But the problem was that the writer had left out some very important words that make all the difference in the context. He didn't just say, he's not here. Come see the place where he lay. He left out very important words. You see, the words he left out after saying he's not here were, for he has risen, as he said. For he's risen, as he said. Context makes a difference. Little words make a difference. There's, there's a lot of meaning in words in Scripture. We, God intends for us to get the context of the words in Scripture. He intends for us to see each and every word, not to gloss over them. And context makes a difference. That writer was wrong because he only selected the words he wanted. And even just one word can make a difference. And for, for us in this passage this morning, there's, there's one very important word that, that is at the beginning of this string of commands. One very important word, and it's look down in your Bibles if you want. In verse 25, what's that first word you see there? What's that one word? You can say it out loud. One word. What does it say? Therefore. And it points back to this glorious fact that 
We've been made new. We've been placed into Christ's body. So in light of the call, we're to speak the truth and not sin in anger. You see, there's some imperatives here. He's commanding us to, to not do certain things and to do other things. But you can't immediately jump into the commandments of God without understanding the context. And the main idea that we're going to see from these two verses, and really a lot of it is coming from that one word, therefore. And the main idea we're going to see is because we've been made new and placed in His body. It's coming from the word therefore. Because we've been made new and placed in His body, we're to speak the truth and not sin in anger. That's the main idea this morning. Because we've been made new and placed in His body, you can't gloss over the therefore. But because of that therefore, then we're called to something. We're called to speak the truth and not sin in anger. So what in the world is Paul talking about when he says therefore in these verses? If you notice, he uses the word three times in chapter 4. And sometimes when the word therefore is used, it doesn't, isn't as pregnant with meaning. But this word in this place is packed with meaning. And Paul intends for us, whenever we view God's commands, whenever you understand God's commands, you must understand them in light of the therefore. You must understand them in light of the fact that He has made us new and placed us in His body. You know, one of the benefits of walking through books of the Bible in an expository way, taking a few verses at a time, it really enables us to better understand Scripture and to apply it to our lives in its meaning in a pace that we can maintain. But there's a detriment too because what we can do is we just take one verse at a time and I think lots of people are guilty of this. You flip open your Bible, you find a passage, you can read meaning into it without seeing the larger context. And so in these verses and the rest of Ephesians, and as you're reading, as we're going through the rest of Ephesians, this therefore is going to be extremely important. If we aren't constantly reading God's commands in light of who He's made us to be, then His commands will become moralistic. If we are not reading God's commands to us in the context of what in this book has already been written to us in Ephesians, then we're going to read these verses legalistically. And we're going to think that these commands are how we become Christians. And, and let me make that clear this morning. Speaking the truth, not lying, not being angry, those things don't make you a Christian. They don't make you more acceptable in God's eyes. Instead, we obey, we do those things out of a motive of gratitude. You see, our motive, our motive, our new life is the motive for our obedience. And that's the first point we're going to look at this morning. Our new life is the motive for our obedience. Because He's given us new life, because He has set us free from enslavement to sin, because He has given us the ability to say no to sin, that's how and why we can obey God. The entire motivation for Ephesians and all the commandments that God's given to us is to be grace. May we be a church that never moves on from an understanding of the fact that God has been gracious to us. God has been merciful to us. And you know the second verse of Ephesians? I want you to flip over there in your Bibles. If you have your Bibles with you, flip over to the very beginning of Ephesians, Ephesians 1. I want you to look down at the second verse of Ephesians in Ephesians 1. Paul has just introduced himself in Ephesians 1.1. And now in verse 2. Look at verse 2. I want you to look and see what's the first word that he writes. Go ahead. Look, look at it for a moment. You see, what's the first word he writes? And it's, it's there in, all, in every major translation. Now I want you to say it with me. What's the first word that he writes? Grace. 
And then he writes not just grace to you, he writes what? He writes peace. He writes peace. And then after that, he talks about the basis for the receiving of grace and peace. It's God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, everything in the book of Ephesians is grounded in the grace of God. Including the passage we had this morning. It's this therefore is pointing all the way back to the very beginning. It's pointing back to who we are in Christ. It's pointing back to the new life that we have. And let's never lose sight of the grace that we have and the peace that we've received from God. The fact that we can never earn His favor. We can never earn peace before Him. But we have favor. We have peace. And maybe this morning you don't know Jesus and you don't have peace. And you're, you're feeling guilt and condemnation. There's hope for you in this therefore as well. Because, you see, He came that we might have peace in Him. He came, Jesus came to reconcile us to God when we were previously enemies of God. He came to pour out His mercy and grace when we don't deserve it. And look after that in, in, in the first part of Ephesians. He talks about how it's not based on our works. And in verse 4 of Ephesians 1, it says, Because He chose us. And not only did He choose us, but He chose us, it says, before the world even existed. Ages before we'd done anything, before... Before we ever were, he says he predestined us for adoption through Jesus. And he did this, it says, to make us holy and blameless in his sight so that we can now walk out this new life and live holy lives. Because of the calling that we've been given, we're to live out holy lives. Because we can live out holy lives. We live out holy lives to point to his grace. The motivation for the commands that Paul's giving in chapters 4, 5, and 6 is the fact that He has graciously called us. He's graciously saved us and made us alive. And His grace is to be evident in our lives to the world around us, that we can shine like stars in the darkness. But you know what Paul knows? Paul is a wise leader. He knows that we're going to be tempted to take it easy in the Christian life. We're tempted to look back and, and live like we used to out of habit and our old sinful tendencies. They still remain, don't they? In your life, in my life, I wake up in the morning and I have sinful tendencies. I have sinful desires that still remain and I must do battle with those things. And so this verse in Ephesians that we have, it's in the middle of a series of putting off the old self and putting on the new self. Paul knows we're going to be tempted to give in and our minds need to be trained. Our desires... Desires need to be purified, even though we've been made new. And God intends that we actually learn Jesus by learning to put on holiness and righteousness out of worship to Him. And it all stems out of a desire to worship God for His grace, for His goodness, the fact that He's made us alive. The truth of the gospel, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, is that He made you who were dead alive. That alone should be cause for rejoicing. That should make us want to live for Him. He has made us alive, but not only that, He enlightened our dark minds. And not only did He enlighten our dark minds, the power of the Holy Spirit has broken our hard hearts so we can experience conviction. And it's a gift. And now God has, has enabled us to respond to Him. And He's not left us alone. He's adopted us, it says. He's made us a part of His family He's made a part of His body, His church. And we have a purpose now to live for Him. And His grace has made us alive. He's enabled us to respond. 
in Ephesians is about how God has made us a new people. And because we are a new people, he says, now live in a manner that will reflect and display what I've done in you. That's what he calls us to. Live in a manner that will show just how worthy God is. Live in a manner that shows that you've been called by God's grace. And that because of God's grace, you're different now. And so, the beginning of chapter 4, he tells us to walk in a manner worthy of this calling. And that worthy walking, it looks like being, he tells us in verse 3 of chapter 4, to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit that he's given to us. And so, Paul knows it's not going to be easy to live like this. If, if you are in this church or in any church, and if you are around Christians for any length of time, you know that it's not easy to live holy lives around fellow believers. It's not easy to live in a manner that's worthy of the calling that you've been given. You know, it's easy somewhat to put off the old self and put on the new self if you're by yourself, isn't it? But... Once I get into a room with other people who aren't like me, it no longer becomes easy to put off my old self. I'm tempted. Um, you see, we can rub each other. We're meant to rub each other. We can have different opinions and preferences, different desires, different backgrounds. And whether we walk in a manner that's pleasing to God or that's pleasing to the remaining sin nature, it's tested when we're put into close community and relationship with other people, isn't it? You ever have visitors stay for more than three or four days? You're, you're tested. Ben Franklin said that, you know, fish and visitors begin to stink after three days. I think he was right. Even with, you know, sometimes family relationships, are the closest relationships we have, those can be some of the most difficult, difficult experiences in our lives when we can be tested. And will we put off that old sin nature and when we live in a manner that's pleasing to God. And the context of chapter 4 of Ephesians in these verses is that we've been placed in a body. And think about that illustration of a body. A body is it's, it's, it's joined together. You can't see where my hand is separate from my, from my arm, can you? You can't see where any of my body parts are separated. That's the analogy that Paul is giving to us. We're to be so closely joined together that there can't be seen gaps in between us. But when you're in that kind of relationship in the church, it's messy, isn't it? You're, these, your, your temptations are tried. And so Paul is assuming, and it's understood, that the church is to be a body of believers who live in close proximity to each other. They share their lives with each other. They help each other. They work with each other towards a common goal. They serve together. They share life's hardships and joys and struggles together. And so it is in this context he's giving these commands. He says, therefore, because you've been placed in a body, because you're new, because God's grace is on you, you're going to need to put off falsehood. And you're going to need to speak the truth. And you're going to need to put off anger. Why? Because you're living in a body. You're going to be tempted. And this kind of intentional, close, caring life, it's not easy and it takes some learning to function together as a body. And when my children are born, they don't immediately know how to, to control their own bodies, do they? You know, if, if, if you have seen any of the newborn babies, it's, it's almost comical at times that their hands just kind of twitch and jerk all over the place. And, you know, and I think when I, when I had our firstborn, I, I put a rattle in Noah's hand. And, and so he would rattle it, and I thought he was doing it on purpose. And then he whacks himself in the head. He, 
Babies don't have control yet. They have to learn. They don't immediately understand this new life that they have. They don't understand how to control themselves. You know, later on in development, they may learn to get up on all fours, but they wobble at first. You know, and I remember, still remember when they were first beginning to crawl, they'd, they'd be so happy and they'd get up on all fours and then they'd face plant. You know, they, where they, you know, all my kids at about 10 months old, they began to try to walk and they had to learn how to make their various po- body parts work together because they, they didn't immediately know how to do that. And, and Paul knows that for us in the church, we don't immediately know how to relate to each other. And so he's instructing us, he's instructing these Ephesian believers, and how to relate to each other in the body, how to learn how to live like Jesus called us to be. And so that's the context of these commands, and it's in light of the fact that He's given us this new life, but even though we have a new life, we don't know how to control ourselves quite yet, and we need to learn. It's not a bad thing. God designed us to be in the body. It's And he's given, if you look around just for a moment, just turn your heads and look around the room just for a moment. Look around, look around all the different people in the room. There are people who don't look like you, thankfully for some of us. There are people who don't act like you. (laughs) There are people who come from different backgrounds. There are people who have um, diverse experiences in life. And when you're put in a body of people who have different preferences, and in differences in, in, in all kinds of ways. It's going to test us. It's going to test us. Will we live in light of who we've been made to be? And then how do we do that? And so Paul doesn't leave his commands to put off the old self and the new self to these ethereal or hypothetical situations. Paul doesn't leave it there and say, hey, just put off the old self, put on the new self, you live in the body and just figure it out yourself. He says, no, I want to get down to the nitty-gritty of... Church body life. And so he speaks directly to the various temptations we're going to face. And and one of these temptations that we're going to face in this new life that we have in the body is falsehood. We're going to face temptations to falsehood. We're going to face temptations to anger. And why does he talk specifically about these? It's because they're unity destroyers. They destroy the unity of the body that he's called us to. And speaking the truth and putting away sinful anger and resolving conflict, they're unity builders. And that's why Paul's calling us to these things. And unity in the body is important. Why? Because it reflects who we've been called to be. It reflects the fact that God has made us His people. The unity in the body, it actually gives glory to God. And that's why it's important. That's why Paul's giving us these commands. And look in verse 25. It says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. The second point that we're going to look at this morning is that we must speak the truth for the good of the body. We have to speak the truth for the good of the body. Falsehood, it's part of the old nature. Falsehood doesn't belong to the new self, but falsehood remains. So what does it mean to put it away? It means to, it means to put something out of your sight. To put something away means to, to put it so that you don't see it. It's just to carry something out of your sight until it's not even near you any longer. And he's saying, do that with falsehood. Put falsehood away from you. Don't let it even be near you. Don't look at falsehood. When one becomes a Christian, you put off the old nature and you put on the new nature. And lying or falsehood is part of that old nature. And so Paul here is assuming that you are a believer. 
and that you've already put away falsehood because falsehood is part of the old nature to be renounced by all believers. And this word falsehood is a little more broad than just telling a lie. Because maybe you're sitting here thinking, well, I don't really struggle with lying this morning. Really? Maybe you do. Maybe you're really struggling with falsehood, but you just don't know it. You see, it includes any manner of deceitful speech. Any manner of manipulative speech that casts maybe you in a better light than is reality. That's falsehood. So what are some types of falsehood that we're tempted to do as Christians? Well, have you ever been concerned that, you know what, I'm going to look foolish and so I'm going to leave out some of these details in this story because it would be unflattering to me. You ever have that temptation? I know I have. How about, have you ever wanted people to think much of you? And so you told a story about yourself in a way that props you up and makes yourself look better. That's falsehood. And that's what he's talking about. You ever, you ever been tempted to be concerned about your reputation? You see, one of the things you're going to encounter when you're in a church is temptation to fear man, to worry about what other people think about you. You know why? Because we did, we did it a minute ago. We looked around everybody in the, in the room. Everybody's different than you. And everybody has preferences and opinions and does things differently. And so you're going to feel this pressure to conform to be like other people. Now, sometimes that can be good because we're called to be conformed to the image of Jesus and to follow people as they follow Jesus. But we can be tempted to want to dress like other people. And so we can be tempted to put on an air or maybe to talk like other people out of desire to be impressive, to fit in. And Paul says, don't do that. Put away all falsehood. Don't, don't try to be automatons, falsely being somebody you're not really are. Put away falsehood. Maybe somebody asks you a question and you give them a half-truth because you don't want them to discover the whole truth and just how bad you really are. Or maybe, you know, you're having this deep time of fellowship in a small group and everybody's sharing something from their lives about what God's doing. They're confessing some area uh, that they need to grow in. And, and so what you do is you think, well, I don't want them to really see how just how terrible I am. So I'm going to confess something kind of halfway back so that you know, they'll think I'm humble, but yet they won't really see how terrible I am. Paul says, avoid that kind of living. and Put away that kind of living. Put away falsehood. Maybe it's seen when you're having fellowship with other men, you pretend not to struggle with something. Or maybe when you get together with ladies to study a book and you pretend you read a chapter you didn't. We've all done that kind of thing before. It's, it's falsehood. It's, it's living in a way that's false. And it, it tears down the unity of the body. Or maybe you're fired from your job and you twist it just a little. You say, I, I, um, I was laid off. You know, everybody's done that. I'm between jobs right now. <laughs> I was laid off when really no one else in the company was laid off and, and you were fired, but you, you don't want to say that because it sounds better. Maybe you're tempted to lie about how your kids are doing when somebody else is talking about the progress their kids are making and so you join in too because you don't want to seem unsuccessful as a parent. Or maybe you make excuses when somebody else drops by the house unexpectedly. And so they show up and they see that your house is a wreck and so that you say... Oh, yeah, my kids just exploded something. So it doesn't normally look this way. Um, when in reality, it almost always looks that way. Or maybe you say, I was just about to clean. When you weren't about to clean, give me a break. I've done that before. We were just, we were just picking up. Yeah, like, because I heard you knock. 
at the door, and so I started frantically throwing things in the closet. I was just picking up, sure. That's, that's, that's not living in a genuine way. It's, it's falsehood. Maybe you're out to lunch with other people. Your credit card gets declined, and you act like it's unexpected when you know you've been late on your payments. Maybe you forget to email or call somebody back, and you see them in church on Sunday morning, and you're like, yeah, I tried to call you, but I, I couldn't get a hold of you. Yeah, you never called. I think I called the wrong number. Or, do I have your right email? And so, maybe in avoid, to avoid talking to somebody, you have your kids say you're not there when somebody calls on the phone and you step out on the front porch. Um, I remember my parents doing that all the time. I hope they're not listening this morning, actually. I'm, like, I'm not here. Like, you are there. I'm, I'll see you. They close the door behind themselves. Like, that's not fooling anybody. Come on. They could hear you. Maybe you're a teen and you say you didn't hear your parents say not to watch a movie or not or to be home at a certain time because you want to avoid getting in trouble, but really you did hear them, you just didn't want to. Paul knows these kinds of temptations because he would have been tempted to, to lie to avoid punishment. He would have been tempted to lessen the truth to make it more convenient for him. Don't think that Paul's somehow above these temptations. Don't think the apostles are above these types of temptations. Boy, it would have been tempting if Paul is thinking, if I can just bend the truth a little bit, I can stay out of prison. I won't get stoned if I just change the truth a little bit. He would have been tempted to be a man pleaser, especially after he's converted and all his buddies, the old Pharisees, come around. He would have been tempted to not speak up for the truth. That's the way the Pharisees were after all, weren't they? When when Jesus asked them a question and, and the Pharisees thought about it for a moment, they thought, well, you know what? If we tell him that John was from God, then we'll be seen to be wrong. And then if we tell him that John was from man, then the people will get angry with us. But we really believe he's from man, but we can't say that because we might get stoned. And so they say, we don't know, Jesus, we don't know. The Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of that day, lied to save face, to save their reputation. And don't think it was limited to them. This, Christians are tempted by falsehood. Think about Peter. He was eating with the Gentiles until his buddies from Jerusalem came and visited and his friends from James came. And the friends from James came and then he was like, oh, um, I'm going to pretend like I don't ever eat with those guys. And so he separated himself from the Gentiles and he didn't eat with them. What is that? It's falsehood. It tears down the unity of the body. This is not an uncommon temptation. Don't think you're above being tempted to falsehood. If Peter could say, I don't know Jesus. No, I've, I'm not one of his disciples. Don't think that you're not going to be tempted to falsehood too. To denying Jesus, to denying the truth. Speaking in a way that impugns somebody else's character, that too is falsehood. Fearing what people think about you, not telling the whole truth, it's falsehood. Casting yourself in a more favorable light to improve people's view of you, that's falsehood. And we're all guilty of falsehood like this. Now, why is he giving us this command? Because he wants to set us free from that old nature. Because we've been set free, because we have new life, because God's grace has been given to us, because He's forgiven us already. Maybe you're thinking this morning, yeah, that's me, I'm guilty of falsehood, and yes, we, we are guilty of falsehood. However, He's forgiven us of falsehood. 
Jesus came to die to set us free. He came to die to take the penalties for all of our lies so that we don't have to lie anymore. And he says, you know what? I don't want you to be bound still by, by living that way in a way that takes away from your good. It takes away from my glory that, that tears down the unity of the body. I don't want you to live in that harmful way. And so put away all falsehood. You know, maybe it's you're not claiming the cash income that you made as income on your tax return. That's falsehood. Saying you're going to do something and not doing it's falsehood. Motivated, falsehood's motivated by evil desires. It's, it's not something we should take lightly as believers. That's why Paul spends time on it here. When Jesus corrected the Pharisees in John 8, he tells them that by lying that they were from their father, the devil, who's the father of lies. Where did lies come from? Lies aren't minor. It's the old self. It belongs to the old nature. He says, put it off. God takes lying seriously. In fact, in Proverbs 21, 6, it says, the treasures of getting, the getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a snare of death. Proverbs 12, 22 says, lying lips, it doesn't just say he doesn't like them. It doesn't say he doesn't like lying lips. His lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. You see, all these things undermine the unity of the body and take away from God's glory. And so because He saved us by grace, because He's forgiven us, He saved us to live a new life. And so He tells us, don't, don't indulge in falsehood. Put off that kind of behavior. Instead, be free and worship Me with your life. And so He tells us instead to put on something. Remember, this is in a series about putting off and putting on. And so He says, put on Speaking true. The content of our speech should be the truth. And the truth comes from God. And the truth is found in Jesus in these verses. And so truth should be the content of our speech with our neighbor. Not only to tell the truth as opposed to a lie. He says, speak the truth with your neighbor. Don't just not lie, but speak the truth with your neighbor. So don't just replace lying with telling the truth. Replace lying with truth speaking. Speaking about true things in God. Speaking encouraging words of truth. And then the theological motivation that Paul gives for speaking the truth, look down in your Bibles there, it says, is for we are members of one another. We're members of one another. He's saying don't forget why it's important to speak the truth. He says because you're members of one another. Imagine for a moment if your eye lied to your foot about where the steps were when you were walking down the steps. You would fall down the steps. It would be detrimental for your eye to lie to your foot because you would fall down the steps. It would cause harm to the body. And so it would be good for your eye to say, this step is about eight inches below. And we do that kind of systematically. We do that automatically. But if the eye started lying to us, and when people have depth perception issues, it's problematic. Imagine if the ear, you're walking along on train tracks... And the ear lies to your head about where the train is. And it says, oh, the train's way off in the distance. You can hear the horn way away. You've got plenty of time. And then the train hits you because it was right behind you. In the body, there's, there's no room for anything other than truth spoken in love because it's, it's harmful, it's detrimental to the body. And it wouldn't make sense for you to lie to your own self, would it? And so Paul is saying here, tell the truth to yourself, tell the truth to your own body, because you're part of the body. We're all members of the body, so tell the truth to the body. It's for the body's good, it's for your good. 
And then he continues to unpack some things that threaten the unity of the body that are contrary to living this new life in the body of Christ. And so he draws attention to something else. He draws attention to anger. And so we see the third point in the passage is that we must no longer sin. We must not sin in anger for the good of the body. For the good of the body, we must not sin in anger. We must not sin in anger. Why? For the good of the body. He's telling us here to be angry but do not sin. What does he mean? Is, he, is Paul giving us a command to be angry? You know, I, I have a friend who, who read the Bible that way. And he goes, well, we're commanded all kinds of things. Don't lie. Be angry. Well, ha- well ha- hang on. I think you're kind of reading that a little backwards. He's saying, be angry, but don't sin. Is he saying all anger is sin? Maybe some people read it that way and say, well, no, Paul doesn't mean that. He means that all anger is sin. Is that what he means in these verses? Or is he saying it's okay to be angry generally, but just try not to sin? What what does he mean when he says be angry and do not sin? Well, Paul is quoting a passage of Scripture from Psalm 4.4. And in that psalm, David, King David has been wrongly Accused, and his character is being impugned by lies, and he's, he's upset. He's angry because he has been wrongly accused of doing things he had not done. His character is being impugned, and so he's angry. But it's clear that almost immediately in the psalm that God replaces his anger with joy and peace. And so David, in that context, tells his hearers not to sin in their anger. Instead, right after telling them, be angry and sin not... Here's what he says in Psalms 4. He says, Be angry, do not sin. That's what Paul's quoting. He says, Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. Peace. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. See, there's an immediate turning to, He's angry, but He's not sinning. He's angry, but He's refusing to sin. He's angry, but He's saying, You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be silent. I'm going to put my trust in God. I'm going to, in my own bed, say, Okay, God, these people are wrongly accusing me, but I am going to be silent and not speak out in anger. And instead, I'm going to put my trust in you. I'm going to offer this as a sacrifice. Why? Because anger often confronts our idols of our reputation or other idols and what we want. And so I'm going to offer this as a sacrifice and I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to trust in you for my reputation and Instead of being angry and sinning and looking for self-justification or vengeance, he says, put your trust in the Lord. You don't have to get angry about your reputation. You can worship God and trust in Him. So he isn't saying it's always wrong to be angry in this verse in Ephesians. No, there's a a righteous anger that that gets angry over injustice, isn't there? Think about it. There's, There's an anger that's good when you have anger against somebody when you see them abusing a child. What about anger when somebody's beating and robbing a disabled or elderly person who can't defend themselves? That's good anger. What about anger when injustice is being done? What about when somebody's telling lies about who God is? Or lies about the gospel? Isn't there a righteous anger? So how can be angry and not sin? You see, it's good and right to be moved to action, to stop an injustice if you can. It's good to defend the defenseless. It's good to be motivated to seek good and seek to do what's right. It's good to be angry when the honor of the Lord is assaulted. Jesus was angry when the money changers defiled the temple and He didn't sin. 
Countless times in the Old Testament, God was angry with the Israelites when they sinned and they did things like offering their children as sacrifices to a false god. Not all anger is sin, but be careful. You see, the, the, the bulk of Scripture, it never encourages us to anger. It doesn't encourage us to be angry. And be careful that you're not just using justice as an excuse to be angry when you're really angry because you've been offended or you've been hurt by somebody or when you didn't get something that you were wanting and that's really why you're angry. See, be angry and do not sin. Often, I think about when I'm angry with my own wife. I'm angry because I feel like she didn't do something that I wanted her to do. Or maybe I didn't get my way. Or maybe she does something I asked her not to do. But that's not righteous anger. That's sinful anger. It's anger because I didn't, I didn't get what I wanted. I was wanting something. Sometimes I'm angry because my kids inconvenience me with their continued disobedience, and I've been lazy, and so now it's gotten to the point where I can't ignore it any longer, and I get angry, and I have to make an effort now to stop doing what I want to do instead of dealing with the situation, and deal with the situation. But it's sinful to indulge in anger. It's sin- that kind of anger is sinful anger. It's, it's, it's sinful to seek self-justification. It's sinful to be angry for self-centered motives. And so Paul is saying, put away anger. Do not sin in your anger. Think about your anger. If you're, if you're getting angry when somebody else has inconvenienced you or put you off, that's a sinful anger. If you're wanting to seek revenge or you're angry when you have, because your pride has been injured, that's, that's sinful anger. It's sinful anger when you want something bad to happen to somebody else or you want to do something bad to them. That's, that's sinning in anger. So I think it's It's rare when I actually am righteously angry. And because that's the case, what what do you need to do? We need to, like David, we need to stop, consider the Lord, put our trust in Him for whatever it is that we're wanting and say, God, you know, this this thing that you're withholding from me, it's, it's from your hand. God, I can trust you. I can trust you for my reputation. I can trust you for not getting what I want. More often than not, our our anger does not produce righteous thoughts or righteous words or righteous actions. Evaluate your anger. Is your anger producing righteous words? Is your anger producing righteous actions? Is your anger producing righteous thoughts? If not, it's sinful anger. James 1.19, he says, Let every person, let every person... Every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why? For the anger of man does not. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. So ask yourself, is my anger producing the righteousness that God requires here? Or is it producing unrighteous thoughts and words and actions? Is my anger towards this person bringing glory to God and encouraging unity of the body? Or... Is it accomplishing something else motivated by sinful desires? Is it, is it helpful? Is it building up this other person right now? We're to put sinful anger away from ourselves. And then in order to keep our anger from developing into sin, Paul gives us some time limits, some guidelines. And so look in verse 26, if you will, please. It says, Be angry and do not sin. 
And here's, here's some of the guidelines for that. How, what, what's a means to help us not sin in our anger? And he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. He puts a time limit on our anger. He says, don't let it go on for days and days. Don't let it go on unchecked. Do your best to resolve whatever has caused your anger before the day is over. A good rule of thumb that my wife and I have put into practice is um, don't, don't go to bed angry. We don't always do that. Sometimes we have to use wisdom and not get into major discussions at 11 o'clock at night. If you've ever done that or not, if, you've, if you're married and, and you're chuckling, you know what I'm talking about. 11 o'clock at night when one of you is tired and you're in bed and one of you says something stupid or unkind or insensitive... Our feelings are hurt and we get angry and it turns into this huge, just irrational fight. Completely irrational. Well, in those moments, we probably need to be silent on our beds and and say, okay, God, I'm going to trust you with that stupid comment that I made or that stupid comment that my wife made. And and Lord, I'm going to trust in you and put away anger. And you know what, honey, we're going to need to continue this conversation tomorrow, but would you forgive me for being angry? It doesn't mean stay up until you stop fighting either. That's, that's kind of a dumb one. We've had some good conversations until 2 in the morning because we didn't want to go to let the sun go down on our anger. But there's a principle here, and it's to not let our, our anger go on. Don't let your anger linger. Resolve to not be angry. Ask forgiveness where you can and wherever possible. Don't let a day go by where we harbor anger. Why? Because sinful anger, it says, look in verse 27... So look at verse 27. It says, give no opportunity to the devil. Why is he saying that? Because sinful anger gives an opportunity to, not just for bad things to happen, but for the devil. The enemy of our souls is given an opportunity in our sinful anger. The enemy of our souls is looking for an opportunity to exploit us when we aren't thinking rationally, when we're being controlled by sinful anger. And he says, don't give in to sinful anger. Don't let it go on. Why? Because you're going to give opportunity to the devil. When you're sinfully angry, you're going to give all kinds of room for the devil to tempt you to bitterness, to resentment, to murderous thoughts that lead to all kinds of evil. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you are aware that you've been harboring anger and bitterness and resentment. Those things are not only destroying the body, it's destroying your own soul. It's giving room to the devil. And God's calling you this morning to repent from protracted anger, from bitterness, from resentment, from wrath. Sinful anger fanned into flame will destroy your own soul. It will destroy your relationship with your kids. It will destroy a marriage. It will destroy friendships and destroy the unity of the body of Christ. So go quickly. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. Maybe you need to go today. Don't let the sun go down in your anger and, and confess and say... I've been guilty of not putting away anger. I need God to change me. I need Him to make me new. Would you help me? And so Paul is reminding us that resisting anger is actually spiritual warfare. And he's saying there's something demonic about our sinful, self-justifying anger that gives an opportunity for the devil for destruction. There's a quote by a man named Frederick Buchner and in his book, Wishful Thinking Transformed by Thorns. And I think he's sarcastically writing here I want to share this with you. He's talking about anger. He says, Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given 
and the pain you're giving back. In many ways, it's a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at that feast is you. And I think he's driving home a point here is that if we give in to anger, we're consuming ourselves and giving opportunity for the devil. can't tell you how many times I've given in to sinful anger myself and almost all the times I did. I was angry. Why? Because somebody was threatening my idol. I think these two commands here are linked. I think the command to put away falsehood and the command to put away anger is linked by something a little more subtle. and It's linked by the fact that they're both controlled by idolatry, which lies with the old man. These sinful, remember those deceitful desires Paul was talking about? He says, put away those deceitful desires. You see, speaking falsehood and, and, and sinful anger, they're motivated by these deceitful desires. They're motivated by these deceitful desires, this idolatry. You know, I'm thinking about when I've been angry, my idol of ease was affected. I wanted that, that things to be easy, and man, that was inconvenient, and I got angry. Where maybe I had an idol of my reputation, and I got angry. Or maybe I had an idol of respect, and I didn't feel like my kids or my wife were respecting me, and so I got angry. An idol of wanting things my way, and I get angry. These are deceitful desires. It's a sinful anger. It's a matter of worshiping myself instead of worshiping God. And it's, it's not just destructive to me. It's destructive to the body of Christ, and it takes away from His glory. And it, and it, and it says wrong things about God's grace that God's grace hasn't really changed, hasn't really made us new. It can destroy our witness and rob God of glory. And so speaking the truth and not sinning in anger, it requires something. It requires putting away idolatry, putting away deceitful desires. And I want to encourage you today that maybe you're struggling with falsehood. Maybe you're struggling with anger. I want to encourage you to, for a moment, think, what is the deceitful desire motivating my anger? What am I thinking I'm going to get from my anger? What am I not getting that I'm wanting? Why am I getting angry here? What deceitful desires can I offer to God as a sacrifice and then trust in the Lord for that instead of trusting in a false idol? Maybe you're here today and you're struggling with telling half-truths or living a deceitful lifestyle and it can feel like there's no way out. Maybe you are here today and you're an angry mom because you feel like your kids just don't obey you and they're out of control. And you want to love them, but you keep getting angry with them. Maybe you're an angry wife because your husband doesn't provide like you think he should. Or maybe he doesn't romance you the way you want. Or maybe you think he's lazy and you feel like, I can't control my anger and it's all because of him. It's his fault because he won't do what I want him to do. He won't stop being lazy. He won't be kind to me. He won't romance me. And God's saying, no, that that anger, it's your deceitful desires that's causing that anger. It's not them. Maybe you're an angry dad because your kids don't do things the way you want them or they don't show you the respect you deserve and your teenager's talking back to you. Maybe you're angry at your wife because she doesn't show you the respect you want. Maybe you think she's lazy. That anger is not caused by them. It's caused by our deceitful desires that he's been talking about in this passage. Maybe you're angry as a teen because you feel like your parents just don't understand Maybe you're angry because you feel like they don't trust you, they don't respect you, they don't let you have freedom. Why are they trying to cramp your style? Maybe you're angry at your teacher, your classmates. Maybe you're angry at God this morning because you aren't getting 
what you feel like you deserve or what you want that you think will make you happy. How do you put away those sinful desires? How do you put away anger? You put away those sinful desires. You say, God, I'm going to offer this sinful desire to you as a sacrifice. Forgive me for it. I'm going to give it to you. And, and I'm going to want to, I want to worship you. I want to trust in you for these things. Instead of feeling like these desires are going to get me what I want, I'm going to trust in you. Maybe you're sitting here and you're experiencing conviction. You want to change. You want to stop lying. You want to stop being false. You want to stop fearing man. You want to stop being angry. But you feel like you can't control it and you know that you're not a Christian though and you don't know what to do. Here's the thing. If you're not a Christian, any attempt to reform your, your behavior, it's going to be short-lived. It won't work. Christians aren't better. We have hope because we have new life. We have hope because we confess that we're, we're we're absolutely awful and we can't do it on our own. That we can't change ourselves. That we need God to change us. That's when hope begins. You see, Jesus, the Son of God, He came to earth and lived a sinless life. He died in your place for your anger, for your lies, so He could take your punishment and break the power that anger has, that falsehood has over you because you belonged to the devil and you could only sin. But Jesus came and He purchased your life with His own. And He promises to raise you to new life if you trust in Him alone. And this morning, I encourage you to confess your utter need for God. You can't do it on your own. Confess you sinned against Him and ask Him to give you a new heart enable you to live in a manner that's worthy of His gracious calling. And if you're a Christian, the answer is the same. Maybe you're experiencing conviction for how you've been angry and had a pattern of anger and let it go unchecked and not seen it as a big deal. Or maybe you've, you've been fearing man or falsehood or... You've been lying in subtle ways. Maybe you've been twisting the truth in your business. Maybe you're a salesperson. You're just telling half-truths and, and God was convicting you this morning. So God's calling all of us this morning the same thing. Quit trusting your own abilities. Remember that therefore. You've been made a new man. You've been given new life. He's forgiven you. Anything you're experiencing conviction over, He's forgiven you of this morning if you placed your trust in Him. And He says, you're free. Don't be controlled by that. I don't want you to live that way any longer. It's, not only is it not good for you, it tears down the body and it's, it's enslaving you. I want you to be free. And so He calls us to look to Him. He calls us to ask for His Holy Spirit to transform us, enable us to trust in Him despite disappointments, despite not getting what we want. He's going to enable us to trust in Him for your reputation. He will change you. Why? Because He has changed you. He will enable you to change because He's already given you new life. How will He not also, with His Son, freely give you everything you need to conquer the sin of lying and falsehood and anger? Because He loves His children and His glory is at stake. Good and ask you to stand, have the band go ahead and come up. Matt, if you could play something you think is appropriate in closing. I want us to focus on not our sin, but the fact that He has given us new life. I want us to focus on that therefore that we began with, the fact that He's given us new life. And because of that, He graciously convicts us because He wants us to be free. And so now I'd encourage you to offer up those sins and say, God, forgive me for those things. And Lord, I pray that you would free me from those things by your grace. So let's sing to him.